This week we continue in our our summer in the Psalms by looking at the first psalm of praise in the Psalter, Psalm 8. Now growing up, you know, I didn't didn't even realize this was a psalm. I I just thought that it was a Michael W. Smith song, right? The, oh Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is... Like that's just, that was what this song was. It was was Michael W. Smith and and I I was wrong. It's actually a pretty fantastic psalm. And it focuses on creation and man's place in it. But even more so, it talks about God's desire for humanity, his purpose for humanity, and how he views humanity, how he views us, how God sees us. Let's let's read Psalm 8 this morning. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouth of babies and infants. You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the seas, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word today, that you would feed the miracle, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. Praise this in your name. Amen. Have you ever felt like incredibly dwarfed, like super small, incredibly insignificant when spending time in God's creation. I grew up in, in Hagen, Saskatchewan, Canada, which is, is pretty much like North Dakota squared. Like it's, it's huge and it's super flat and it's a massive like farming community. Like that's what we do up in Hagen, Saskatchewan. But in, when I was in youth group, once a year, we would go on a ski retreat and, and you, don't, you don't ski like, like you cross country ski in, in Saskatchewan. You don't like downhill ski. And once a year, we would go down to Calgary, Alberta, to one of our churches down there, and we would get in the bus early in the morning, and we would drive up into the Canadian Rockies, the Rocky Mountains. And, and I, I will never forget, like that first time, you know, I mean, you're kind of driving up into the mountains, and it's, it's, it's kind of cool, but you're in a bus, and you can't really see. And then you get your pass, and you get in your ski, and you get on the lift. And I mean, I was, I was young and insane. Like, I don't know what I was thinking, but the first time I took the lift... To the highest point on the mountain. We're like, that's where all like the black diamonds are. There's one like, like blue, which is, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with ski stuff, but like it's green and then it's blue and then it's, and then it's black and then it's double black. And green is the only place I had any business being. Like that's the only place I should have been. But I took this chairlift to the very, I mean, all my friends went up there, right? And it's like, I don't want to be the one pansy that's hanging out down in the greens. Like that's the, that's the bunny hill. I'm not going to go hang out there. I got to go. I'm, I'm hanging out with the guys. That was a mistake, but, but I rode that thing all the way up, and we got to the top, and I remember getting off that lift and turning around, and there was just the mountains. Just amazing. And like you take that breath, and you're like, oh my word. 
I didn't know that creation could look like this. I've heard about it and I've seen pictures. Uh, there's a picture up there now, but it, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't really convey what it's like to be there and to see the mountains just spread out. And you feel so small. You feel so small. There is a greatness that is proclaimed from creation. And it's overwhelming. The mountains, creation, the, the, the beauty that God has made, it shouts the glory and the majesty and the power of God. I mean, it's, it's much more than just feeling small. It's deeper. It's more powerful. Now, growing up, you know, it, it didn't take a lot for me to feel small. <laughs> I, I was 4'11", my freshman year of high school. And I mean, I'm not really like a big guy right now, but I was really small back then. Even though I, I was small, I, I was pretty athletic. And, and, and I had good speed. I had like pretty good reflexes. But despite my athleticism, despite my skill, and that I was more talented than, than some of the guys who made the team, I got cut from the basketball team in eighth grade. I was told that I was, I was too small. That hurt. I felt insignificant. There's a, helpless, a helplessness that comes with feeling insignificant. I couldn't help it that I wasn't over five feet, right? There's nothing I could do to change my situation. If I could have, I would have. Like if they got one of those tables, I can hang it by my feet so I can be a little taller, right? So stretch me out. Let's do that thing. Like I hated being that small. I hated it. There's nothing I could do about it. Nothing. It was beyond me. I could practice my shooting. I could practice my dribbling. I could practice my passing, and I did, right? I could study the game. I could master its strategy. I could understand it thoroughly. But there was nothing, nothing I could do about the one obstacle that stood between me and the one thing that I wanted. I couldn't make myself grow. And it was frustrating. It made me so mad. I mean, I remember standing in the hallway and looking at the list because they would, they would post the list in the hallway next to the canteen. And, and that's, that's where like all the sports stuff, if you made the choir, boom, that went up there. If you were in drama, boom, that went up there. The basketball team, boom, that went up there. I remember standing in that hallway and looking at that list of the players who had made it. And I mean, I was, I was a bit of a sense of, I just started crying. I just lost it. I lost it in the middle of the hallway because there was nothing I could do. There's nothing I could do about it. I'd given everything I could and it wasn't enough because of something that I was powerless to change. And that's how sin works in our lives. It's something that we can't overcome. You know, I, I, just as I couldn't force myself to grow taller, we can't force ourselves to stop being sinful. It's part of who we are. It's, it's part of being human. And sin makes us feel insignificant. With sin comes guilt. With sin comes shame. You know, maybe not in the heat of the moment, but as we look back 
on what we've done, as we look back on, on how we acted, what we have thought, what we have said, we, we feel gross. We feel embarrassed. In our sin, we feel like failures. We feel small. Sin makes us feel insignificant. And in our sin, it can feel like God is ignoring us as well. Like we're insignificant to him. Like we're unnoticeable. Friday nights, my family does, uh, well, we, we try to anyway, sometimes, most of the time it happens. Actually, it's become sun, Sunday, Saturday nights. I can't talk. Saturday nights has become the day that we do pizza as a family and we watch a movie. And a couple weeks ago, we watched uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Are we familiar with that movie? I loved that movie growing up. But, but as I was thinking about, about insignificance, I remember... At the beginning, like kind of what sets the stage for the story is the dad's been trying to develop this shrink ray and he just can't quite do it. And the neighbor kid hits a baseball through the window and somehow it like reprograms the shrink machine and turns it on. And this thing's going around like shrinking everything in the attic. And the kids hear that like they got to go up and get the baseball. And so these four kids go up into the attic and they get shrunk like way down. And now they're just these tiny little beings. And there's a, there's a point at the beginning of, of the movie when dad comes up. And the kids, they're tiny, and they're yelling, Dad, we're down here, you know, waving their hands. There's a little couch, and they're jumping on the couch and trying to get as high as they can, trying to make it so that their father will notice them. But he's totally oblivious. He loves his kids, like they know that, that he loves them, but he can't see them. He's not paying any attention to them. And what actually happens is he's like, oh, there's a big mess up here. And he takes a broom, and he ends up sweeping his kids into the dustbin, putting them in the trash, and taking them outside. And that's really where the movie begins, because now they're outside, tiny, small. Their father didn't see them, didn't notice them, and they crawl out of this garbage, out of this mess they've gotten themselves into, and they see spread out before them the yard, which once didn't seem very big, which once didn't seem like it was, a, I mean, no problem. You know, you cross the yard in 10 steps, and now the grass is huge, and there's ants, and there's scorpions, and there's all these different problems that they have to overcome, and they feel tiny and insignificant, and their smallness, their, their tininess made it so that their father could not see them. It made it so that he overlooked them. They were small. They couldn't get his attention. No matter how hard they yelled, no matter how high they jumped on that couch, they couldn't get dad's attention. Does it ever feel like God doesn't care? Does it ever feel like there are so many other better things in the world that God doesn't notice you? That your sin is, is so big, has, has shrunken you to this point where you're unnoticeable to God. You are insignificant. When you stand in creation, you see the mountains. You see all these wonderful, fantastic things that God has made. The, the, the mountains, the oceans, the forests, the prairies, the desert, the sky at night. Maybe not here as much. 
But I remember being in like in Africa where there is nothing around you and sitting outside and looking at the stars and it was amazing. The vastness of all that God has created. We look at that. When you look at all of this, this good, you know, it's, it's beautiful and it's awesome and it brings glory to God. And when we look at all of that, we see all of that. And at the same time, we recognize how horrible and how sinful we are as people. And we bring that taint to creation. And it is easy to relate to David when he writes in this psalm, What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. What is man? What is, what is woman? What have people done? What has humanity done that makes you care for them? Who am I? As we sang this morning, who am I that the Lord of all the earth would care to know my name? Would care to feel my hurt? Who am I? How can God love us? It's a kid's movie out that has an amazing illustration with this. It's Toy Story. Now, I know there's like three Toy Stories. I think they're actually making a fourth one, which I'm pretty excited about. Toy Story, the original. It's a story of, of toys that live in this little boy's house. And kind of the leader of the toys, the boy's favorite toy, is Woody, the the plush cowboy. And then one day, the boy gets the new Space Ranger toy. And Buzz Lightyear shows up, and he upsets the balance of of the toy room. He upsets the balance of, of the house. And partly because Buzz doesn't realize that he's a toy. He thinks he's actually a Space Ranger. And so he's got this whole, like, oh, I'm going to save the world and destroy Zer, maybe. Like, he has a laser and he pretends he can fly. He does all these different things. And, and as the story proceeds and goes on, Buzz decides he's going to save the day and he tries to fly through a window. And it's just this fantastic vision of he's standing on this windowsill and he's going to escape. And he stands and he's got his arm up and he jumps, shoots his wings out, and he's ready to fly. And as. He kind of sees the window, and then it just goes down, and he crashes. He can't fly. He, he realizes he's the truth. He's a toy. He's not a real space ranger. And, and so grief-stricken and disillusioned, Bug hang, Buzz hangs his head and in resignation declares, I'm just a stupid, little, insignificant toy. I'm just this stupid little insignificant toy. And Woody, the, the cowboy, they've, they've kind of, they've become friends at this point, And he consoles his friend. He comforts him. And he has Buzz lift his foot. And there Buzz sees in black sharpie, in permanent ink, the name of the little boy to whom he belongs. And Woody then tells Buzz, look over in that house. There's a kid who thinks you're the greatest. And it's not because you're a space ranger. It's because you're his. It's because you're his. How can God love us? 
It's not because of how much money we make. It's not because of how moral we have lived our lives. It's not because of how attractive we are. It's not how put together our lives may seem or appear. It's not because of how polite and well-mannered we are. It's not because of anything that we have thought, done, or said. As we've previously gone over, we are all pretty aware of how messed up we are. Even if things might look good on the surface to our neighbor, to our society, or to whoever may be concerned. So how can God love us? It's because we're his. We're not toys. God didn't pick us up on some store shelf or find us in the lost and found. He created us. He formed man and woman and he breathed life into them. The Bible tells us that he formed us in each of us in our mother's womb. He created us. And even though we may not believe in him, he created us in his image. And he loves his creation. Though that love may not be reciprocated, you know, we may not love him back, but he loves us. He created us. And so we are his. The purpose of our creation is for relationship with him. And we see that throughout the whole story of the Bible. From the beginning, where he created us and made us, and to the end, where he brings us up to be with him in heaven and eternity at some point in time. The whole Bible story is a story of God's love for his people. A people that he longs to be in relationship with, that continues to turn on him, right? A people that continues to run from him. That goes, and, and he has gone to such great lengths to restore us back into relationship with him. Jesus died our death and carried our shame. God has gone to such great lengths for us to be reconciled with him. He loves us so much. And nothing can separate us from that love. As Karen read earlier from Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And more than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, hard times, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And then the best 37 to 39, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing 
that can separate us from the love of God. That's how fixated on us God is. No matter how small we feel, no matter how worthless we feel, no matter how insignificant our sin has convinced us that we are, God loves us and He is fixated on us. He refuses to look away from us and nothing can separate us from the love of God. He's not sweeping us up into the, tra- into, into the trash that we're trying to get his attention, that we're yelling and calling to us. He is fixated, focused on us. It doesn't matter what we have done. God still loves us. And it doesn't matter how far we run. God still chases us. As we read in Psalm 23, like a lion chases a zebra with intent, with passion, with zeal, with love. As our passage continues this morning in ver- uh, past verse 4, you know, it, it talks about all that God has done, how he has elevated mankind, how he has crowned mankind with glory and honor, and how he has put the rest of creation under the authority of humanity in verses 6 to 8. Despite our failings, despite how insignificant we may feel or seem to be, God has lifted us up. He has put us in a place of authority in creation. He has poured over us his glory and honor, even though we proved unworthy of it. And because of our unworthiness, because of our sinfulness, he sent his son to die for us. He sent his son to pay the price that we could not. He forgave our sins. He gave us faith. We are not insignificant to God. I don't know, you know what life has brought your way or will be bringing your way. But as you are hearing this today, maybe you're asking the question, you know, who am I? Why would God care about me? I haven't earned it. And I don't deserve it. Why? Why would God love me? Because you are his. And he loves you. Whether you believe in him or not, he loves you. Your belief does not dictate his creation, his love, his desire. He made you, and he loves you. In Toy Story, the little boy's name, the name Andy, was marked in a lasting way on the toys that belonged to him. In the same way, those that have faith in Jesus are marked by the blood of Christ. His blood does not wash off. It does not fade with time. God loves all of us. The whole world, in fact. But, but not all of us have put our trust in Jesus. Not all of us believe in his death and resurrection on our behalf. And so not all of us are marked with his blood. But God longs, longs that we all would be. He wants 
each of us to be marked so badly, to write his name on our hearts. God desires that everyone in the world would be saved, whether sitting in this pew in this church this morning or listening to the podcast later or living next door to one of us or in the town next over or across the country or around the world. He wants to use each of us in his mission to bring about his kingdom. Standing at the top of that ski lift in Alberta, Canada was a who was I or who am I moment for me. The beauty of the Rocky Mountains spread out before me. I'd never seen anything like that before. What importance could I have when beauty like that existed in the world? How could I mean anything to the one who created such magnificence? And yet God promises that he knows us. He promises that he cares about us. He promises that we are not insignificant. That he knows us and not only our names and who our parents are, how many hairs on our head and every sin that we have ever ever committed and ever will commit. And in spite of all of our faults, in spite of all of that, he loves us and forever. We matter to him forever. We are not insignificant to God. Let us forever be reminded that we never will be and never could be insignificant to God and that he wants the entire world to know that he loves them. Amen.